There's a scripture in Malachi, Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. And it says, for I am the Lord, I do not change. So things change in our life. So kids, things change in your life all the time. But something we need to always remember is that God doesn't change. And sometimes we're tempted to do things that don't please God. Sometimes our friends, maybe sometimes even our brothers or our sisters or our cousins or our neighbors can tempt us to do things that are not pleasing to God. And the Bible says that God never changes. That means what God puts in his word, what God commands us to do and how he commands us to live, never changes. And sometimes people try to convince us that God does change. And that what God didn't want us to do before is okay for us to do now. Or sometimes we might say, well, we did that before and nothing bad happened, so I guess it's okay to do that again. And just because sometimes we do things that are not pleasing to God and those things don't result in us getting in trouble or they don't result in us something happening to us, maybe even sometimes we do things that aren't pleasing to God and it seems like God might be blessing us. We have lots of fun doing all kinds of things and sometimes we can even have fun doing things that aren't pleasing to God. The Bible says that sin is pleasurable for a season, but every season has its end. And the Bible says the end of sin is death. And do you know that Jesus came to give us life? In fact, it says that he came to give us life and to give us life more abundantly. And so here's something for all of us to remember, whether we're young or whether we're older that God never changes, that God has shown us in his word the things we should do and the things we shouldn't do. More than that, even, God has put his spirit on the inside of us if we are his children, and his spirit will guide us even when we don't have a Bible in our hand. Did you know that? That you can be out playing and doing something, and when somebody tempts you to do something that's not pleasing to God, or you have a thought, or you decide you're going to do something, do you know that the Spirit of God on the inside of us will tell us, he'll let us know, oops, that's not a good idea. Now, sometimes he lets us know, and we go ahead and we do what we know the Spirit of God told us not to do. And sometimes, hopefully, we get in trouble for doing that. Our parents find out, and then our parents discipline us. And that's a good thing, because that means our parents love us. And the reason they discipline us is because they don't want us to get in the habit of doing bad things that will result in really bad things later on. So, remember, God does not change. And what God calls sin in his word is always sin, and this is why it's important for us to read our Bibles, no matter how young we are, no matter how old we are. You know what I hope? I hope if you can't read today, I hope you're looking forward to learning how to read so that you can read God's Word and grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus. And you will see exactly what the Bible says, that Jesus is the same Yesterday, today, and forever. And that's good news. Amen? Amen. All right. And this is what we're going to talk about today, that God doesn't change. That God and God's word never expires. It never Become so old that it's no good anymore or it doesn't apply anymore. We've been looking at Acts chapter 15 and the commands that were written to the Gentile churches from the Jerusalem Council. And we looked at those commands that had to do with food 
And there was a fourth command that it was necessary to abstain from sexual immorality. And what we see in uh, this is that God is telling all of his people, Jew and Gentile, to live a life that's pleasing to God, to live a life that's holy and righteous before God. And so the question today that's often asked is, does the law apply to us? And if it does apply to us, how does it apply to us? So we're going to look at some of these questions so that we will be able to answer those. But the reality is this. The main reason that we need to have an answer for that and to know that for ourselves is because all of these questions rest in the glory of God. And the answer to all of these questions rest in the glory of God because all things are for his glory and to his glory. So our obedience to God is not just for our good. There is benefit in being obedient to God. But ultimately, the greatest reason and the greatest motivation that we should have to obey God is not just for our good, it is for his glory. And we should honor God's glory, we should seek to protect God's glory, to promote God's glory in everything that we do. And this is what we see happening in our culture around us. There is a disregard for God's glory because man's glory is what is most often promoted it's what's most often seen. It's what's most often sought after. And you can see this in the lifestyles that are being promoted. And the very, the very culture that we live in is all about the glorification of man. And what God has called us to is to be all about his glory. And if we are all about his glory... Our glorification will be taken care of. God will see to it. So Acts chapter 15, let's read uh, these few verses beginning in verse 28. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they had sent off the letter, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. So the churches saw this letter as an encouragement. And the short summary of this is that the Gentiles could eat any meat or any food they wanted as long as it was not offered to idols, as long as it did not contain blood, and as long as it was not from an animal that was strangled. Real easy, in one sense. Other than these three conditions, they were free in regard to food. Last but not least, though, the letter said, it's also necessary that you abstain from sexual immorality. It's very often asked in our current culture, if we do not have to abide by those laws and those ordinances that have to do with food, then why do we have to abide by the laws regarding sexual immorality? Specifically today, this is most often talked about in the context of homosexuality. And the short and the accurate answer is that the Bible allows us to eat freely, but the Bible specifically commands us to abstain from sexual immorality. Now today, not all sexual immorality is considered immoral in our culture, obviously. That's not hard to, to see. That's not hard to discern. It, it, just by watching the television, by reading a magazine, by driving down the road and seeing billboard, all sorts of things that promote lifestyles and things that the Bible defines as sinful. The culture has radically defined what the scripture, or has radically redefined what the scripture clearly defines as sinful. Man does not have 
the authority to redefine or to cancel what God has defined and what God has instituted. Now, you may say, well, I know this already. The problem is we've got a whole culture out there who doesn't know this. And I would be willing to bet you have friends and you have family members who don't know this, who in fact would argue with you, would press or kick against this idea that we can't redefine or we can't um, evolve and now find things that were once unacceptable and make them acceptable now in our, in our current culture. And one of the things that you hear very often is that Jesus never specifically addressed the sin of homosexuality. It's often pointed out that Jesus commands us to love as he loved. And so you see this and hear this very often. The cry of the culture is love is love. It's on t-shirts, it's on bumper stickers, it's, it's everywhere. Love is love. And what that, while that might sound really nice, and there's... There's a measure of truth in that. The reason behind this slogan, the point of the slogan is basically to say, it doesn't matter who I love or how I love, love is love. But we must define what love is and what it means to love as Jesus loved. Because that's, in essence, what they're saying. Jesus never talked specifically about these certain sins, but he did tell us to love. And so love is love. Well, actually, the Bible says God is love. In other words, love is not necessarily love. God is love. Love is not ultimately about us. It is about God. And all love is to glorify God who is love. If what we call love dishonors God, then it can't glorify God. And when we say love is love, it does not mean what we are calling love is actually love, especially if that love or what we call love is contrary to God himself. Love is not love if it does not demand obedience to God. Listen to what Jesus said in John's gospel, verse, chapter 14, verse 15. Jesus said, if you love me, Keep my commandments. John 15, 10, Jesus said, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So what does that tell us? That tells us that Jesus kept his Father's commandments, and Jesus did abide in his Father's love. And so Jesus said, If you confess to love me, then you must keep my commandments. And if you keep my commandments, then you will abide in my love, just as I kept my Father's commandments and just as I abide in my Father's love. In Mark 12, 30 and 31, Jesus tells us in answer to a question, what is the greatest commandment, teacher? And Jesus' response is, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your soul and with all your strength. In other words, to love God with all that we have and all that we are. That's what that scripture is telling us. That is the greatest commandment. And then he goes on, he says, the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, on these two hang all the law and all the prophets. And the point is, if you don't remember anything else, if you don't know anything else, know this, that the greatest commandment is that we love God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, with all of our strength. In other words, there's not a part of us that is not to love God with all of us. We cannot fulfill that commandment while in disobedience or while in contradiction to God's word. To love God is to obey God. To love God is to love what God loves and to hate what God hates. To love God then 
is to hate sin. To love as Jesus loved is to love the Father as Jesus loved the Father. To obey the Father as Jesus obeyed the Father. Now, I know what you're thinking right now. It's a pretty tall order, and it is. To love God is to obey God. Of course, we cannot do this perfectly as Jesus did. We, we don't even come close to doing it the way Jesus did. I watched the second part of, and, and I would like to, to show it. It is three hours long. It's very long. It's the second installment of American Gospel. The first one was American Gospel, Christ Alone. This is called American Gospel, Christ Crucified. And it's about the, the necessity of the sub substitutionary atonement of Jesus. But in this video, they showed um, a, a pretty well-known evangelist named Todd White. Uh, and Todd White made the statement. I've heard Michael actually told me that Todd White has watched this and now has recanted this. But in this video, Todd White says, I haven't sinned in 12 years. When you receive Jesus and you get the Holy Spirit, you can live a life free of sin. That's the point. And I would say, no, that's not the point. Because as much as you think you're not sinning, you can't keep from sinning. Because if the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, with all your soul, and to do that all the time, how many of us are able to do that perfectly all the time? Hands? Anybody? None of us can. It's impossible. We cannot love God the way Jesus did. We cannot keep the law the way Jesus did. We cannot walk in sinless perfection the way Jesus did, and that is exactly what God demands, and that is exactly why God gave the law, to show us what he demands and to show us that we will inherently fall short of his glory. We cannot love God perfectly and completely all the time the way Jesus did. But as we are trusting Jesus, our heart should be to love God. Our heart should be to seek and obey God. And out of that faith and out of that love for God, we understand that we do not justify our sinfulness. We do not call evil good and we do not call good evil. What we understand is that we run to Jesus. We cling to Jesus because Jesus is our only hope. God is love and sin is sin. We're called to holiness. The argument from some of the Jews recorded in Acts 15.5 was that the Gentiles had to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. Paul argued against this and began and being con as being contrary to the gospel of God's grace. The Gentiles did not need to be circumcised, nor did they need to keep the law of Moses. They were not Jews. They were not under the law of Moses, but they were, as we all are, under God's law. An example of this is found in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 19, Paul writes, Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Circumcision was commanded for Jewish males, and it was part of the law of Moses. It was a part of the law that applied specifically to ethnic Jews or to anyone who would convert to Judaism. In this verse, Paul indicates that circumcision and uncircumcision is nothing. He says, this is, he says this as he emphasizes that keeping the commandments of God, that's what matters. Now, some automatically would say, well, I don't understand. That seems like a contradiction. But Paul was not contradicting himself. Paul is saying it is obedience to Christ from a changed or a circumcised heart that matters. 
The measure of our circumcision is not what happens in our flesh. The measure of our circumcision is what happens in our heart. And from that circumcision or change of the heart, that change will be worked out. Yes, through our flesh, but, but not in signs or not in food we eat or clothes we wear necessarily, but in how we are conformed to the very image of Jesus, how we love God. How we obey God and how we obey Christ. How we love and embrace the holiness of God. Not in how we try to find ways to justify our sinfulness or to live contrary to God or to look for loopholes in God's words so that we don't have to obey. That's not a heart that loves God with everything that is within you. So what we see is that Jesus fulfilled the law. Jesus, in his own words, tells us that he did not come to abolish the law. <clears throat> he came to fulfill it. Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till it is fulfilled. Jesus walked in sinless perfection, doing what is impossible for us to do. Walking in perfect and complete love in obedience for his Father. Fulfilling all the commandments, including the greatest one of loving his Father with all of his heart with all of his mind, all of his strength, and all of his soul. Jesus fulfilled all the law perfectly and completely. In Christ, here's the good news. We fulfill the law as we trust Jesus to be for us and to do for us what we cannot. Jesus keeps the law, loves God perfectly for us, we trust in and we follow a perfect Christ as we walk in our imperfection. And as we walk by faith in Christ, the Father does not see our imperfection. He sees the perfection of His Son. That doesn't justify our imperfection that's the glorious grace of God that should motivate us toward the holiness of God. Even though we live and walk in chronic imperfection, we are in Christ. And we are commanded to walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Galatians 5, 16 and 17, this is what Paul writes. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. The ethical or moral laws that govern things like sexual immorality were never relaxed in any way. The laws pertaining to Jewish culture are not applied because Gentiles are not called to be Jews. The moral law stood firm because all people, Jew and Gentile, are called, rather, to be holy. Our identity is now in the one new man in Christ. Jews trying to force the Gentiles to keep the law were, in essence, trying to force them to become Jews. The gospel is not given to make men Jews. The gospel is given to make men holy. The gospel breaks down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile and creates in Christ one new man from the two. This is what Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 13 through 18. He teaches us that Christ abolished in his flesh the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. Those ordinances concerning what we eat or what we don't eat, what we wear or what we don't wear, distinguish Jews from Gentiles, those ordinances, Paul said, are abolished in Christ. The law reveals God's character and God's nature in terms of righteousness and holiness. That law can never be abolished. That law never passes away. 
We're to put off the old and to put on the new. In Paul's letter to the Colossians, he makes very clear the things we are not to concern ourselves with and the things we must be concerned with. I'm going to read this section of Scripture from Paul's letter to the Colossians. And what you're going to, see, what you're going to hear as you, as you hear what Paul writes, you can follow along on the screen, you're going to see that the reason people are confused today is because they either don't read their Bibles or they choose not to believe what the Bible says. Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, Paul writes, In him you also were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing, triumphing over them in it. So let no one judge you in food or in drink. Right there. Let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. The point was not all the food. The point was not what we wore. The point was not all of that. The point was always Christ. Those things pointed us to the point who is Christ. Therefore, verse 20, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourself to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance, get that, an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion. In other words, they're not really wise. False humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. If then you were raised with Christ, chapter 3, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Therefore, listen, put to death your members which are on the earth. Fornication, that word fornication is the same word used in Acts chapter 15, translated sexual immorality. It is necessary that you abstain from fornication or sexual immorality. What does Paul write here? Don't let anyone judge you in food. Eat what you want. But put to death your members which are on the earth. Fornication, uncleanliness, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once, past tense, once walked, when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. You see, sin is not just surrounding sexual things. Sin surrounds all sorts of things. And sin we are to put off. Put off the old man with his deeds and have, verse 10, put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Who is that? That is Jesus Christ. 
Put off the old and put on the new. In other words, don't be conformed to the old sinful nature, the old sinful man. Don't be conformed to the world. Be conformed to Jesus. Put on the new. Put on Christ and be conformed to the new man according to the image of him who created him where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. So the summary is this. We may eat anything we want, but we may not live any way we want. Now in Christ, we may freely eat what we want. We are not under the law in regards to food or drink or other such regulations. In fact, Paul writes there in the letter, in the verses we just read, he says, don't let anyone judge you according to these things. That said, Paul warns us in Romans 14, 21 to enjoy our liberty in Christ, but not at the expense of a weak brother. In other words, we're not just free to do anything we want. There is still love governing us. Eat what you want. That's fine. But don't do anything at the expense of a weaker brother. Don't become a stumbling block, in other words. We are free, but we are not free to make others stumble, failing to consider one another. Though we are free in regards to food, we are commanded to put off the old and put on the new man in Christ. We are to no longer join ourselves to the world in sin. We are to be distinct from the world through a life of holiness being conformed to Christ. If then you were raised with Christ, put to death your members which are on earth, fornication, uncleanliness, passions, evil desires. We put off these old things and we put on the new man in Christ. So they write, it is necessary that you abstain from sexual immorality. In other words, this is a non-negotiable. God commanded Israel to eat and to dress and to do many things differently than the nations around them. And even so, that true distinction was never meant to be only outwardly. It was always, then and now, meant to be inward. For as Jesus teaches us, it's not what goes into a man that defiles him. It's what comes out of a man that defiles him. The sexual ethic of mankind was given to us in the garden at creation. It didn't come with the law of Moses. It already existed. It's not an ethic that changes with the culture. It's an absolute truth that God ordained in the created order. The foundation of our sexual ethic is God's created order. Sexual immorality is not measured by how kind or loving or good someone is. It's not negated by someone's reputation or standing in the community. Sexual immorality is not determined by how committed someone is in a monogamous relationship. Man does not determine what is or is not sexual immorality. God determines that, and God reveals that in his word. The definitions originate with God. They don't come from man. That means man can't change and man can't redefine what God has authority over. God's absolute truth does not change. His truth remains the same even as the values man chooses to adopt or adhere to may change constantly, and they do. So what we see in the scripture is that marriage is the foundation for our sexual ethic. God created and ordained marriage. Sex is a gift given to man for procreation and pleasure within the marriage relationship. Sexual immorality is defined based on the sexual ethic given to us by God in marriage. God does not change nor do his standards concerning sin. Man's sexual ethic and definition of sexual immorality may change as man changes, but God and his attitude towards sin, in this context specifically, sexual sin does not change. Marriage is the foundation of our sexual ethic, and the definition of sexual immorality comes from the sanctity of marriage and the marriage relationship. 
And so we have to begin to understand sexual morals based on the sanctity of marriage and how God defines marriage. Marriage is the God-ordained covenant relationship between a man and a woman. Marriage pictures the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. We see this in Ephesians 5.32. Ephesians 5.32 gives us the commentary. It tells us exactly what God designed and why he designed marriage the way he did and what it all means. God instituted marriage at creation in the garden, Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image, God created him male and female. He created them. Genesis 2.24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Jesus gives the foundation of all sexual ethic when he defines marriage from the record of creation. It's recorded for us in Matthew 19, 4 and 5. And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. From this reference to the creation of man and the marriage relationship established by God in the beginning There is no reason for Jesus to expound beyond this foundational truth. Why didn't Jesus talk about homosexuality? He didn't need to. He talked about marriage. He said, this is what marriage is. And we understand everything else from the context of that. The sexual ethic founded in marriage went unspoken because it needed no explanation. It was a foundational truth that God had already laid out in the law concerning sexual sin in the Old Testament. You see this very clearly in Leviticus chapter 18 and Leviticus chapter 20. And critics today like to say, well, the Old Testament doesn't apply anymore to the New Testament. Then why is Jesus quoting it? Why did Jesus quote it throughout his ministry? Why did Jesus use it to teach his disciples and to establish the church if the Old Testament is irrelevant? And if you say the Old Testament is irrelevant now that the church has been established and now that we have the New Testament, then you have to say the words of Jesus are irrelevant. Thus, Jesus is irrelevant. I don't think a lot of people in the church are ready to do that, but there are a lot of people that have already done that who have chosen their sin over their God. And he is their God whether they believe in him or not. You do realize that. Jesus is Lord, not just over those who acknowledge him. He is Lord over all. Even those who don't believe in him, he is still Lord over them. Homosexual relationships violate the foundation of what a marriage is. A same-sex relationship cannot be a marriage by the biblical definition. Remember, any more than a circle can be a triangle. God defined marriage between a man and a woman. And man cannot redefine that. At creation, God made them male and female. So the rejection, as we see today, of what's called the binary gender, binary means two, two genders, Today, our culture tells us there are hundreds of genders, potentially. It's whatever you want to believe. It is whatever you believe it is. It's whatever you think it is. Talk about science deniers. The rejection of the binary gender is man's sinful attempt to redefine what God established at creation. And the reason he wants to redefine is because he wants to justify his sin. There are two genders, male and female. God established this as the created order for mankind. People's confusion, their feelings, their lifestyle choices do not change the reality of biological males and biological females. We cannot wish our gender away, and to do so is sinful. It is just saying that God made a mistake. So we either have to say God made a mistake when he made me, or worse, 
we're saying there is no God and I am just the product of a genetic or a mental malfunction. Or I'm perfectly happy like this. I embrace my identity. In the video last night, the son of a very famous evangelist, the son of Tony Campolo, Bart Campolo, who is now an atheist, talked about his journey of how he tried to justify, you know, believing and all of this. And, and, and he makes a statement. He says, why would you believe in the God of the Bible when you can imagine one better? And he was serious. And toward the end of the video, he said, I came to the conclusion, this is when he, did, this is when he decided that he could no longer believe in God and worship God. It did, didn't matter. He came to the conclusion, he said, I, I believed in so many gods. And he said, the, the last one I believed in was the best one. He was just like me. And I realized, why do I need to believe in a God? I have me. Now, that might sound shocking to you, but I'm telling you what, it is not as uncommon as you think. And this is what the culture is trying to make not just normal, but acceptable. And the standard by which we should define everything We say we can identify as, we can be whatever we desire, whatever we imagine ourselves to be, not just in gender, but I can be the best God that I can imagine. I can be my own God. And this is what's happening when men redefine God's word, abolish God's standards, justify their sinfulness by saying things like love is love doesn't matter who I love. No, actually, it does matter who you love. What matters first is that you love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, with all your soul. And if you're not doing that, your love is going to be wrong. This is why homosexuality is sexual immorality. The context of the relationship does not matter. A committed, monogamous relationship or not, it is sin. It is an emotionally intimate and or sexual relationship that is reserved for a man and a woman in marriage. Adultery and fornication is sexual immorality with the same sex or with a different sex. It doesn't matter. It is a violation of the marriage covenant. Sex before or outside of marriage, outside of the marriage covenant is sin. It is a relationship that is reserved for the marriage bed. Sexual immorality is not exclusive to gender, and it's not exclusive to sexual preference. Here are some New Testament scriptures about sexual immorality. Romans 1, 26 through 28. Paul says, this is the reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use of what is against nature. And their men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful. 1 Corinthians 5, 9, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, that is the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor the covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners, the list goes on. You see, God's not just picking on sexual sin. God said sin is sin. 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee sexual immorality. Galatians 5.19, now the works are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanliness, lewdness. Ephesians 5.3, but fornication and all uncleanliness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Verse 4, neither filthiness nor foolish talking. He goes on down in verse 5. He says, for this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, or covetous man has any inheritance in the kingdom. Revelation twenty-two fifteen. but outside the holy Jerusalem are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters. 
And whoever loves and practices a lie. Those who justify their sin love and practice a lie. It's not those who struggle with sin. We all struggle with sin. It's those who justify their sin. The teaching of the scripture is clear. To reject the Bible's teaching on sexual immorality, you must reject the Bible. There are more scriptures. I could stand up here for a long time reading you scriptures about sexual immorality. The point is the Bible is clear on what it teaches. So we either reject the Bible's teaching on sexual immorality, and if we do that, we have to reject the Bible. You cannot honestly say the Bible does not teach homosexuality as a sin. You cannot redefine marriage or sexual immorality based on accepted cultural norms. It is not the culture that determines what is or what is not sinful. It is God who determines that. We can freely eat and give witness to Jesus Christ at the same time. We cannot be in sexual immoral. We cannot be in sexually immoral relationships. We cannot be justifying sexual immorality and give witness to Christ in a manner that is acceptable to God even when it is acceptable to the culture. I watched that video Friday night, and I, I literally felt fear for some of the people there. I'm thinking, it, it, do they not realize? I guess they don't. Our life is to be lived for the glory of God. We exist for the glory of God. We have been saved for the glory of God. We cannot glorify God if we are living in sinful relationships or lying about what is or what is not sinful. As the Jerusalem Council wrote to those Gentile churches, so they wrote for us, it is necessary that you abstain from sexual immorality. That's the word of the Lord. And we accept it or we do not. Now, getting it accepted here in the church is not, is not the difficulty. And I'm not saying these things because I, I, I think you're not convinced. I'm saying these things because the world is not convinced. And it's not even our place to convince the world, but it is our place to proclaim the truth. And this is the truth. And we can't be fearful of the truth and we can't back down from the truth because the world opposes us. Because they are opposing this truth. As loud as they can, as forceful as they can. And they will cancel you loudly and forcefully as soon as they can, when they find out that you don't agree with them. The church has got to have a backbone to stand up against this. And it begins with you understanding what the truth is and knowing what the Bible says and not being tricked into believing somehow through the twisted words of the serpent well, maybe the Bible doesn't really mean what I think it means. Maybe it doesn't really say what I thought it says. Well, you know, that makes sense. No, go with the Bible every time. Just go with the Bible every time. Even if you can't break it down and explain it to someone, just go with the Scripture. You'll always be safe going with the Scripture. Amen? Let's get ready and come to the table. This table of grace, this table to celebrate the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus, the one who kept the law perfectly, the one who loved his Father perfectly, the one who did what we cannot do. And even though we fail miserably and chronically, he invites us to this table if we are trusting in him, if we are knowing 
that it is not our righteousness, but it is his righteousness. We are not giving thanks because I have been sin-free for 12 years. I haven't, by the way. That's what the guy on the video said. We are giving thanks because I am chronically sinful, but Jesus is sin-free, and he has made a way for me where there was no way. Let's stand. So, today, go and eat freely what you want. And know that you do so with the liberty that's been given to us in Jesus Christ. You can rest assured that you are free to eat anything you want. But you must also be assured that you are not free to live any way you want. Because God has called us to holiness. It's, an, it's important that we be a people who know our God, who know his word, who know how to rightly divide his word of truth. It's important that we are a people who can give a reason for the hope that is in us. It's important that we take a stand for the truth and love and not back down in the face of opposition. It's not our reputation at stake. It's the glory of God. Stand for the glory of God, even if the culture chooses to cancel you. God is unwavering. May we seek his grace and stand in his truth and be as unwavering as he is for us. That's what the scripture commands us to be. That's what the scripture commands us to go and to do. That's what disciples do. We do the hard work, even in the face of opposition. That's what this is about, equipping you to go and do the work Jesus has called you to do, to go and obey and to glorify his name. Amen.